Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Alice Fraser first studied law in Sydney, Australia, but found comedy in the footlights while getting her master's degree in rhetoric at Cambridge, and honed her stand-up skills in New York City's open mics and comedy clubs before returning to Australia as a comedian. You've likely heard Fraser's voice before if you're a fan of The Bugle, because she hosts a weekly spin-off podcast called The Gargle. And in the first year of the COVID pandemic, she wrote and performed a daily satirical news podcast, The Last Post, set in an alternate dimension. She's also co-hosted best-selling documentary audiobooks on Audible, and her 2020 standard special, Savage, was released as an Amazon original on Prime Video. Fraser sat down with me between shows in her 2022 Edinburgh Fringe run of her latest hour, Kronos. We had an enjoyable and an educational discussion about the harsh economics of stand-up comedy, whether you're taking your show to the Fringe or just trying to pay the bills and support a family. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my substack called Piffity at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! Well, Alice, uh, thank you so much for podcasting with me. Um, when I saw your show, I don't know if you've been mentioning this every night, but the show I attended, uh, you were... You were fairly open about the economics of stand-up comedy. Yes. And uh, it's one of those things, I suppose it could be said across industries, people don't generally want to share their revenues or their expenses. No, and I think that is part of a system that is designed to make sure that people keep making not enough money. The idea that it is shameful to talk about being underpaid for things, that it's embarrassing to not make enough money, that you need to front and pretend you're doing better than you are doing. You know, this idea that, you know, it's a sort of, you underst- understandably, you know, success breeds success. So if you present the appearance of success, it might attract more success. That's a religious belief. That's fucking putting out biscuits for the gods so they give you more stuff. That's not true. The truth is, if you talk about how much you make, then you can get together and go, hey, fuck it, none of us are going to work for less than X. Like, that's the actual truth. So for me, I think it's important to talk about when you're being underpaid and when you're doing it and when it's worth being underpaid. You're like, I'm doing this for the exposure and I think it'll give me an opportunity and it's worth it for me in this instance, but it is desperately underpaying me for the amount of work that I'm doing. Just be honest about it. I mean, that, that's a thing that I believe. Well, yeah, and, and that's one of the things, I mean, I, just, I told you before I turned the microphones on that, I'm here in Edinburgh for my first fringe, and I'm only staying for 10 days. Mm. And that's all boiled down to economics. I don't, yeah. I couldn't afford to stay here for a month. Yes. And it was only when I got here that I realized, oh, that's... No one can. No one can. Yes. And that's actually a thing that's being hotly talked about. Yes. It's, it's a fascinating thing, the Edinburgh Fringe. I love the Edinburgh Fringe. I think it's an incredible flowering of human culture. It's just that... Like thousands of people just agree that it exists, and so it exists. You, everyone just shows up in August, 
and it happens. You know, what an incredible thing. It's like the original cryptocurrency. It only exists because everyone has decided that it exists. Mm -hmm. It's a sort of an incredibly beautiful sort of fairyland where for a month nothing matters but art. Money means nothing. Time means nothing. You know, day and night mean nothing. You're just there to see other people doing the best things that they can do and do your own craft. It's like a master class or a conference or a convention. All of those things packed in together. It's beautiful. It's also a fucking nightmare in terms of the economics of it. So you need to be very sure that you're either willing to pay this ridiculous amount of money for the experience or that you're being incredibly careful in how you spend your money because you can sink 20 grand into a show, no problem, and get nothing, you know? And we're talking about this in 2022 where it's become enough of an issue that the venues in the French society are openly responding. Yes. When you first came here in 2015 with Savage? Yes. What were the economics like for you then? So with Savage, I did it. I've always been fairly conservative about spending money Mm -hmm. on performing. Uh, So I did it with the Free Fringe, and I stayed in a share flat with a bunch of old road comics, and there was a little box room like that, a little cupboard, and I slept in that with no windows, no ventilation. It was 100 pounds a week. It was fine. It was fine. It was was tolerable. Um, (laughs) Tolerable financially or tolerable psychologically and emotionally? Both. both. I quite liked being with the old road dogs because they were were men who'd been working in stand-up comedy for years who were never going to be in the running for the awards. They're They're just doing it as a job. So they were very pragmatic about it and the kind of hysteria that you get among the sort of more, let's say, artist comedian types, Mm -hmm. which is probably more my gang, naturally speaking, not to sound like an absolute wanker. But, you know, yeah, like my I have friends who every year on the clock have a nervous breakdown about their shows because they want to do something important and meaningful and difficult and challenging and exciting and dynamic and that's a lot to ask of you and if you are staying up till three o'clock every morning trying to network and then also drinking and then also eating a deep fried Mars bar instead of dinner you get two weeks into the fringe and you read a three and a half star review and you just burst into tears and can't stop you know (laughs) so three and a half stars is is tears for some people, yeah. For for people, I, I, as someone reviewing shows for my first fringe, oh, that's good to know. Now that I've already reviewed thirty shows, yeah, yeah. Oh, the ones with three and a half stars, oh, they're not going to enjoy those. Well, the thing about a three star <laughs> review, or a three, I mean, three and a half is a sort of a kind version of a three star. The, the thing about a re- three star review is nobody goes to a three star mm-hmm. show. No one goes. Oh, what do the reviews say? Three stars. Ah, oh, that's great. I'm going to go see that. It you just means you, you it's a show. You don't put it on the poster. Yeah, you don't put it on the poster. It's not a compliment. Sorry. It's not a compliment. It's a it's a I guess a hearty pat on pat on the back and like, well, you've done a job. You know, two stars is you've done a bad job and one star is I would like a refund, please. How dare you? You know, mm-hmm. so in that spectrum of things, Four and five stars are kind of, for the fragile comedian's ego, the mm-hmm. only acceptable number of stars. <laughs> I don't know if you're going to review my show. I shouldn't be saying That's this good to you. know. Perhaps I should have talked to you the first day I showed up before <laughs> I started reviewing shows. Well, although, I guess it's, although I guess it's probably better as a critic 
to not know that before you start. Yes. Yeah, because then you're honest and giving your your honest of, kind of Everyone has this is the other thing. Everyone has their own kind of um this is why the star thing is a problem because everyone has their own idea of what stars mean. I've just told you what I think they mean when right. people give them to me. But you know, there can be people who are like I never give more than 3 stars unless something's extraordinary. You know, unless it's like just mind blowing good, then I might mm. give three and a half. You know, there's some people who just have that um, that bar set low. That's a two star review. That's <laughs> <laughs> and that's um, why you get at least four stars yeah. because well, I don't, I don't. You can stay in the moment and notice. <laughs> well, this is I, yeah. Look for me, I I don't know. I try not to read reviews um, unless they're good during the festival because unless I'll, I'll read. There's a few people who I will read because I know their reviewing style. I know what they like. I've seen their work as mm-hmm. reviewers over a number of years. So it means something. I know what they're like, what they won't like. I kind of have a measure of what they, what their opinion means. Um, and, you know, they have their biases or not, and I'm kind of aware of those. So when I read a, re- a review that they've written, I have a sense of what the show will be like or what they think of my show. Um, but if I if it's just anyone, if someone I've never heard of who's written a review, then it's just some some cunt with an opinion. <laughs> you know, like why God should bless I? The internet. Yeah, right? yeah. It's... At least at least in the, in the old media days, your review had to go through a vetting process of yeah editors and publishers. Yeah, and now it's just. That's the, even before that, you know, I, I had friends who were reviewers and they'd say, you know, they'd, they'd hand in a four star and their editor would say, I'm sorry, we've got too many good reviews, you've got to hand in a bad review. So either you have to give that one fewer stars or review something negatively. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an economics of that as well. I quite like reading bad reviews of acts who I love mm. uh, because it reminds me that you don't have to agree with them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because in this, I don't know, we're just, all you want as a comedian is to make other people happy, right? And if if you're not, even if they are just some random person, you feel sad. I have had one show so far during this fringe that I was really looking forward to and then felt like I had to write a bad review. And then as I was writing it, I wrestled internally with, well, should I... Give this bloke the benefit of the doubt, or well, that's a question. That I mean, that is, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt, but sometimes also, you, you know, you also as a reviewer, your duty is not just to the comedians to keep us happy. Your your duty is to the audience members and whether they should be spending their money, and and it's not. I think the best reviews for audiences has got, got nothing to do with the stars. It's got to do with whether they can read the review and have a sense of whether they will like the show or not. Like reviewers, like I said, that, that I'm familiar with, like Steve Bennett of Chortle, I've read his reviews for years. Right. And it's not that I think he's a magnificent reviewer, but I know when he thinks something, what that will mean for me. Sometimes I, sometimes I share his opinions on certain types of shows. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I know if he doesn't like a show and he puts it in a particular way i will like that show that for me is a useful review he doesn't like that but i can see he's written it well enough descriptively enough and exposed his biases enough that i know from his bad review that that it will be a good show for me that's how i felt as a a child with film critics yes 
Yeah, you're like, oh, you know, he doesn't like action films. I love action films. Or if, sometimes if they hated it, I knew that I would love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's a useful review. With comedy, it's even more subjective, though, obviously. Because yeah. your sense of humor differs. And so as a reviewer, especially 15 years after starting my website, I, I also wrestle with the notion that I'm writing for people who don't think like me as well as those who do. Yes, yeah, and can you give them a picture so that they know, even if you don't like it, they might. So there are some very popular comedians, not at the French, but there are some very popular comedians who sell arenas. Yeah. So I know that they have millions of fans. Yeah, and they're not And for I you. don't care for them, or I don't think they're even very talented. Yeah. But I still have to write in a way that acknowledges that there's something that people are responding to. Yes. And what, it, what is it that they're responding to? If you to? can identify it, even if it's not a thing. And then that's where the critical thinking really comes in well apparently apparently sort of legendarily um jim jeffries did an arena show in melbourne and they one of the papers sent their most feminist leftist writer to review it um which was generally seen as quite a dick move on the part of the paper Mm -hmm. that of course she was going to give it one stars and call star and call it misogynistic trash but didn't affect his ticket sales at all because the people who read it could see where her bias was, and they're like, "Oh, it's you know horrible to women and horrible to eth- you know ethnic minorities and all of that stuff." Uh, I'm going to love it. Um, of course, Jim Jeffries is sort of currently wrestling with uh, an audience issue, which is that he did a bit against guns in America um, that made him briefly and virally a darling of the left. <laughs> uh, which, if you know his back catalogue, is a, l- a little ironic. <laughs> Not that he's a right-wing comedian, but he's certainly mm-hmm. an outrage merchant. Um, but he definitely be- was when he was younger. I don't know how much he still dabbles yeah. in that now. I think he still dabbles in it, yeah. He likes to He likes to get that reaction. He likes oh. to get a shock. He likes to... Yeah, so, yeah, so does Bill Burr. Yeah. So does they, so do so many comedians who are very talented. They like that right, they, edge between. Yeah. Oh. In, instead of having an audience love you, how do I make them hate me and then still love me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Push and pull. It's, it's a lot of fun. I any any comedian does that. I do that a little myself. You know. Now, before you got into comedy, you studied the law, and you were telling me you worked at an investment bank. I was a lawyer. You I, had another plan before comedy. I didn't have a plan. I don't think at all. I don't think I had a plan for life. Um, I think, um, yeah, I was a lawyer for a year and I worked in an investment bank as an intern in New York and uh, those were things that didn't suit me. So you grew up with Buddhism and then for a a long period of your life you dealt with your mother's Yes, my mom was sick. She had MS. Right. How, How much did those two things impact your own career path in terms of... Mm. I think a few it's difficult to tell with Buddhism because obviously the way that you kind of are taught the metaphysics of the universe shapes everything right the idea that uh, you know life is suffering and death is inevitable and there is no um, there's no point clinging to things or getting too caught up in things I think obviously that shapes the way that you approach stuff like money Equally, you know, the combination of my grandmother being a Holocaust survivor and my mum being sick meant that I've never had a feeling, I've never had a feeling that 
any future is guaranteed. Mm. I find it incredibly difficult to conceptualize the future. So when people say, what are your ambitions? What are your plans? I'm, I have none. I, I, I mean, I sort of, I have an idea of what I might like to happen, but I, I can't honestly believe in it. I can't say that, you know, a week from now or a month from now, I'll still have the use of my body or my brain. So I feel like whatever I do, it's not, not like live for the moment. It's not quite that. It's something like whatever I do, the journey has to be worth it. The process, even if it's difficult, has to be nourishing. I don't really believe in putting your life off until you're retired, which you see a lot of people doing. I don't really believe in um, torturing yourself for some future satisfaction, um, which is not to say I believe in being self-indulgent either. I think you should... You should find this way of living that is, you know, there's a little eye to the future, but it needs to be interesting enough now. It needs to be satisfying enough now that if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, your last thought won't be, ah, shit. <laughs> you know? So then it makes more sense to go into the creative arts. Yes. Yes, because the process is fascinating because the, yeah, I feel like if you put your eyes on the horizon you can be heading in a particular direction career-wise, but anywhere you fall along that path is good enough, you know. You mentioned not putting things off, but of course your current show, Kronos, yes. <laughs> <laughs> relies on a premise of, oh, I've put everything off. Yes. Now what? Yeah. Um. Yeah, I love a deadline, man. I love a deadline. It's great. I don't function without deadlines. I've always spent my whole life thinking I was lazy, Um but then I did the last post in... Uh, That's where I was leading. 2020. It's the, it's the complete opposite, where you're like, I'm going to do it, something every day. Yeah, it was a daily satirical news podcast set in an alternate dimension. That's how I met Josh Gondelman. I had him as a guest on it, and he was, I think, probably my favorite of the guests on it. <laughs> um, and it turns out that while I can't write a book and I can't, you know, create a large large thing on spec uh what i can do is deliver every single day 366 days of the year i wrote 80 hours of comedy that year that's a lot of comedy <laughs> what was your what was your process like did you were you meticulous about at this time of the day i'm going to get this done because i know I have to put it out. So it was a little bit, a little different because we, uh, although it went out every day, we recorded in batches. We would record two times a week. And we would record four episodes with one host, one co-host, and then, uh, but, but not Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So in terms of writing, it was this real challenge because what we would be doing is writing this Monday, next Tuesday, the Thursday after that and the Monday after that, for example, would sort of be spreading it out into the future, which meant I had to have in my head sort of two or three weeks' worth of planning in terms of the news arcs. So the news arcs were vaguely linked with the real world but often quite abstracted because I didn't want to be doing the real world news because it was so depressing in 2020 <laughs> and so repetitive. If you remember, it was Brexit, Trump and the pandemic. That was it. Brexit, Trump, pandemic, Brexit, Trump, pandemic. And it was really difficult to make new and interesting jokes about that. So I thought I'll do this alternate universe. But what that meant was sort of, yes, making a year's worth of news up 
and then making jokes about it. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's got to be cathartic to have an outlet. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. Before you have this new outlet. Yes. Having a little person is a whole different yes. adventure. Talk about the economics. Yeah. You also mentioned that uh, how important Patreon has been for you. Yes. Yeah, I say in my show um, that I couldn't have afforded a baby if I didn't have a Patreon, which, you know, is... But, yeah, that's that's the reality of it, is that I, particularly in the last two and a half years, stand-up income has been extremely irregular or non-existent. Um, there's been Zoom gigs and sort of occasionally there's been openings up and people have gone and see shows, but you can't guarantee it anymore. And so having this kind of online support network and a regular paycheck gave me that stability I, it, it, there's, there's nothing more to say about it like, there's nothing more elaborate or insightful that I have it, just that's a fact about life right but that's something that had the either the pandemic or the baby happened five years earlier yeah would have been different it would be completely different I might be a lawyer again by now there wasn't there weren't those subscription platforms to make money no and and the the lovely thing about the Patreon for me is that I get – so I always have this problem or, or kind of I wrestle with access. I don't like having a paywall. I don't like saying these people get something and these people don't. But the whole – you know, obviously people need to buy tickets. But I like to say if you can't afford a ticket, just let me know and we'll figure out some kind of exchange or something because I don't like the idea of closing people out of – one of the things that I love the most about comedy, when my dad asks me, why don't you write an opera or why don't you do the theatre, is that nobody thinks stand-up comedy is too fancy for them. There's not, a, there's not a cultural barrier. Because it's considered a low art form, you're talking to everybody. And so you, if I want to do kind of high-flown ideas, I have to make them accessible to everybody, anybody, someone who just walks in off the street, somebody who doesn't have a secondary education, somebody who can't read has to be able to find something funny in my show. And that is such a really lovely thing. But then with the Patreon, I sort of have to figure out how, how much access to give to people. I have these weekly salons where people come and have we just have a Zoom room chat. Okay. And it's, it was so good during the pandemic just to talk to people all over the world, all different circumstances, all different socioeconomic backgrounds, all different races, all different genders, all different cultures, and just have this shared space. And I do three of them are for the, you know, whatever subscription access level, and the fourth one in every month is open access. Anyone okay. can come. And I found that so, like... I know it's something that I offer to other people, but it was so nice for me as well. Because as a comedian, you sometimes just don't talk to anyone except other comedians. <laughs> True. You forget about the real world. But, you, know, I had you, a, start, a you start talking about people as civilians. Yeah, which yeah. Is, I don't know if it's that common in Australia, but, but these in are America, people... comedians often refer to non-comedians as, as civilians. civilians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which implies that... We're in the trenches. A lot of the metaphors around <laughs> comedy are quite violent and right. uh, militaristic. And yeah, I died on stage or I bombed, bombed on stage or I killed. killed. Yeah, it's very aggressive. 
But yeah, yeah, there's like a, a sheet metal worker in Minnesota and an economics undergraduate in Germany and a heavy metal guitarist in Sweden. And we all get to... And they're my friends now because I talk to them once a week, which is more often than I talk to some of my other friends. I think it's a really wonderful thing. You know, talking about accessibility, I, I know that um, CNN comedians sometimes... Uh, look down on musical comedy because they feel like it's too accessible. Yes. It's easy. It's cheating somehow, right. which I think is ridiculous. What's your take on it since you do... I do. Play I, I play the banjo occasionally, but I try not to do it too much. Um, Were there periods where you thought about being a banjo comedian? There was periods where I thought about it uh, and periods where I was embarrassed to play the banjo. And when I started out in Australia... Um, it made a massive difference, and I don't know how much of that was just my own confidence and my stage presence, but as a young woman coming on stage, the reaction of the audience was often negative. Before you even hit the mic, it was like, oh, who the fuck is this? Who do you think this is? It was a real sexism in Australia um, about particularly young women doing comedy. And if I came on with a banjo, it was confusing enough that you had the benefit of the doubt for 10 seconds, enough to get a few jokes out and prove yourself. So that was what it was originally, and then it sort of became a bit of a crutch. And so now I sort of, I have it, but I try not to use it too much. Um, but it do, it is useful as a tool in terms of the, I, I try to, sh- this is going to sound very wanky, I try to create shows that have a shape, that have an arc, that have sort of ups and downs in energy. And also, um, so if you think of a, a cube, right? You have your traditional, you a cube, yeah, yes. no, just a, just a, just a, an empty cube, right? You have right. across you mm-hmm. across from left to right. You have ups and downs in the show. The 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 narrative ups and downs, which you, if you've done any kind of English study, you probably know that that's like the shape of a narrative is you start on a level and that's the status quo, and then you go up with excitement, and then you go down, and there's you know some problem, and then Perfect. so that 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 left to right arc. Mm-hmm is there in a, in a stand-up comedy show. I like to create those shapes. But there's also um, energy levels in a show where it's kind of, maybe let's say the, the line gets thicker or thinner, where you have like a song, it's high energy, and then you have quiet moments that are low energy, but they might be quite intense. And so this is where the cube comes in. You also have close and far. So you're either coming in right close to the audience and giving them something really personal or you're, you're stepping back and doing something like broad about society or trends or politics or something global. And so with all of that's like how I tend to think of a show. And a banjo lets you do something that's high energy but could also be like intimate or personal or vice versa. It could be high energy but taking a big step back and doing a kind of a it just gives you an extra tool in your kit to give that um, variety of texture that I like in a show. Does that cube apply to podcasting as well? Interesting. The, um, the podcaster asks seven years into doing a podcast. <laughs> I, I, I think it applies more to scripted work than to improvised work, and a lot of podcasting is at least partially improvised. That said, I write... I do very written shows, like The Last Post was very written, The Bugle is very written, The Gargle is about 50-50, written and sort of riffed. Um, the Audible series was probably all scripted? All scripted, yeah. The Audible series is probably better in terms of thinking of that kind of arc stuff. 
Yeah, basically, if if you have control over the the length of, of a show, then yeah, there should be. I think with podcasting, particularly conversational podcasting like this, you're less less of a cube and maybe more of a circle. You want to bring things back round. It's more weaving or more knitting or something. You're trying to make make sure everything sort of feels bedded down and and um, sort of like it's all on the same kind of you could be talking about a bunch of different things but that you're having the same conversation right and then that might be you know oh you mentioned this before and bringing that back or a theme that you've noticed emerging and you kind of peg that down i think that's more that's more the way that podcasting works i say to the man who's been podcasting for 50 that requires that i've been listening and paying attention (laughs) (laughs) that's always the problem when you're interviewing someone is the difference between listening and planning your next question Right. Yeah. It's tricky. It's tricky to find that balance. Uh, You mentioned not having the most pleasant experience with the Audible series, although it. I had a wonderful time with it. I I had a wonderful time with it. It was a really. Like, no, I'm. I'm, That is an inaccurate. uh, Ah. If if that's what I'm saying to you, or if that's what comes across to you, I need to fix that joke. The economics were. The economics were dreadful. Um, (laughs) But I had a wonderful time. It was such a privilege to do. I really enjoyed it. I like making documentaries. Um, I was really interested in the subject. I worked with Ash Rampura, who's a doctor, a neuroscientist and practicing neurologist, so real genius guy, and we had great um, podcasting chemistry. How, uh, did you, how did you end up? I was working uh, with – so Chris Skinner, who's the producer of The Bugle, works for Something Else Studios, which mm-hmm. used to be the biggest independent podcasting studio in the UK. They recently got eaten by Sony. Uh, which is one of the reasons why we didn't renew the last post because uh, they were only interested in kind of big properties. But, yeah, so he got me in contact with uh, their pod, uh, their, their documentary branch mm-hmm. and I was approached as a comedian amateur to do the original one that I did with Ashrampura, which was on meditation, uh, that there would be an expert in neuroscience and then there'd be uh, Gumby, you know, somebody who knows nothing and who's just there to be the everyman. Mm. And I said, I think you maybe don't want me for this because (laughs) I was brought up meditating. I was brought up Buddhist. So I'm not like, I don't know anything about the neuroscience of it. I don't know about the technical science stuff. So, but I would be happy to talk about the experiential side and I couldn't pretend not to know that stuff. Not to be in wonder of it all. Yeah. Not to be like, whoa, what's this meditation business? You know, breathing? Like, uh, I couldn't be that person. It would have felt disingenuous. So I said to them. Silence? What's that about? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, So I said, you might not want me. I can recommend some other people. And they said, actually, no, that might be an interesting dynamic, having you be the, essentially, the earthy one and him be the brainy one. Um, Darling. So it was only a deal for one to start. And then. Yes, my love. And then the audience responded in kind. Yes, they loved it. We got so so much uh, traction and and. Uh, yes, we were talking about cubes. A, a lot of downloads, um, and then, uh, yeah, we did. After that, we did the habit change one, which was uh, very 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 successful, and one on wellness and. Uh, yeah, we just did a couple of these documentaries and it was really delightful and then the pandemic hit and I'm hoping we can do another one because it was a lot of fun. You just need a new contract. Yes, I just need a new contract. Yeah, they the the, the back end. 
Yeah, it was not it was not well paid, um, is the thing. And this is one of the problem with these streaming services because uh, they are very very quiet about how well you're doing. Um, was that the case with Amazon? Amazon, absolutely. I don't know how well my stand-up special did on Amazon at all. I don't know if one person's watched it or if a thousand people have watched it. I get a lot of emails from people who've watched it, but maybe every single person who's watched it has emailed me. You know, like, and that's and so it's you know only a couple of hundred. I don't know. I I feel like it's done well because a couple of hundred people have emailed me. You know, there was a while there when it launched where I was getting two or three emails a day from people, and I assume that means more than that were watching. <laughs> but I don't know. Um, yeah, they haven't told me. Um, the first Amazon special I did, or I did, a, I did a special that was then bought by Amazon, and that was bought for five hundred pounds. And then the second Amazon special that I did, I don't know if I've signed an NDA, but it was like significantly more than that. And it was funny because the first one I sold was The Resistance, which was the sequel to the second one I sold, which was Savage. Um, so in, in many ways, like this, the first one I sold for much less was like better. It should have been better. Like, you know, it was a... Well, Savage came through as part of a package deal, though, with yes. other comedians. other comedians. That was a little bit... I mean, there's some behind-the-curtain stuff there that was a little bit funny um, in that I was recommended to Amazon by uh, Neil Gaiman who had just finished Good Omens and was kind of their darling boy. And he listened to my trilogy podcast, which is Savage, the Resistance and Empire, three hours of stand-up back-to-back. It's all telling one story. He listened to it and he, he called me out of the blue and said, hey, do you mind if I put you forward to Amazon? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I really mind. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, so that, then, then the package deal came through that they were going to do 10 comedians, 10 Australian comedians to do stand-up specials. The production company was also a management company, and I was the only person out of those ten who was not in their stable. So if I was a little bit the outsider, um, and yeah, it was sort of a little bit awkward, I think, because I don't think had they had their druthers, they would have chosen me. I think Amazon came to them saying, "Oh, and one of your people needs to be Alice Fraser," which is simultaneously a great privilege and slightly awkward moment. You know, right? Because you you started talking about the importance of talking about the business side of comedy, so comedians can work together. Yes. And yet, sometimes the management or the agencies will work together, but only for people who are on their team. Yes, absolutely. One of the best things about being with a quote-unquote good agent is that they'll say, oh, you can have Michael McIntyre if you take Joe Bloggs. That happens all of the time. You know, a a big television company doesn't want to take risks. They want known acts and known names. But the reality is that you don't become known unless television takes a chance on you. And the the only reason that television takes a chance on you is if there's a guaranteed outcome for them which means, you know, you get Jerry Seinfeld if mm-hmm. you take this other person. Now, in the States, I mean, that happens all the time in the States, too. There are certain people on Netflix who I am sure are only on Netflix because... They're with a management company that has or leverage. Or comedian <laughs> yeah. who said, as part of my deal, I want you to give this other comedian an hour. 
But I'm not sure... Well, I have no idea how the platforms are perceived in the UK or Australia. Is there a... Is there a dominant or a preferred platform <laughs> for comedians in Australia or the UK? I think basically anything... It's one of those odd things where I'm, this is just... You're just going to get nonsense with her fondling the microphone. I'm sorry. Little... Uh, this is Laser. This is my daughter, Laser Fraser. Or well, Laser Fraser is her internet name. Ah. Um, and she has a lot to say. Um, I'm going to put you down. I'm afraid you can't eat the microphone. But she doesn't have a TikTok yet. Though. She doesn't. She doesn't. <laughs> She's not happy about not having a TikTok. No, she wants to. She wants to have her say. Uh, I think we've probably got another five minutes before she hits yeah. the hits the wall of tolerance for this. Um, this nonsense of not paying enough attention to her. Um, but Do you want to untie my shoes? Oh, very nice. You don't even see no. my shoes. You see my Zoom. Can you believe there's two different Zooms now in 2022? Uh, I know. Zoom H4N and um, other Zoom. But the preferred platforms for comedians. Oh, preferred platform. I think anything with name recognition, really. Okay. Um, that if you're, you know, in the same way as as everywhere else people want to be on television even though no one watches television anymore uh success online despite being objectively more successful is somehow not given the same credit because you haven't been passed through a series of gatekeepers so it can be the same here as it is there in terms of on the one hand you can bemoan the state of comedy on netflix but if netflix calls you up and offers you a deal, you're going to say yes right away without yeah. questioning it. Yeah, I think so. Almost certainly. I mean, I always read contracts, but that's because I used to be a lawyer. <laughs> so to bring this, bring this all home, how has having Laser Fraser changed the economics of it? Um, so first of all, the moment I started making enough money on the Patreon to cover my rent, I found out which gigs I hated doing. <laughs> um you say yes to many fewer things. And also, you know, a lot of getting successful as a comedian, this is the brutal truth, a lot of getting successful as a comedian means doing non-economically viable shows, paying more than you are making to get to a show. You know, they're paying you whatever it is, £150, and you're paying £100 train ticket and £45 in accommodation costs or whatever it is or you're sleeping in the train station so you do, so you do make a profit or you're trying to make sure that you can stay on someone's couch or you're saying yes to staying on someone's creepy couch because otherwise you don't make any profit and that's the calculus of being a young comedian trying to make it that you are doing things that are and that's not even taking into account gender yeah that's not even taking into account gender politics which is whether you can say yes to sleeping on that couch whether you can sleep in the station at night whether you can wait until the night bus till four o'clock in the morning and deal with all of the drunk fuckheads to get home to have done 10 minutes at a moderately successful club so they might pass you for no money you know this that's the reality of it i'm lucky enough to be established enough in my career that i don't have to say yes to those gigs anymore but, you know, I always thought when I was doing those gigs that it was important to push back um, for the next woman coming along. 
you know, there was a gig that I did once in Australia, in rural Australia, where I think I was the first woman they'd ever booked. And the they said, oh, you, dr- you drive out to the gig and you do a line-up show and then we put you up. And we got there and the accommodation was bunk beds in a shared room with the other three comedians. And I thought, okay, I don't know these guys. I've, I've, I've known them for eight hours. For the eight-hour drive, that's how familiar I am with them. I don't really want to sleep in a room with them. I could. I don't want to cause a fuss. What about the next woman that comes along? And so I said, I'm sorry, I'm not comfortable sleeping in a room with three strange men. And they did that thing where they're like, oh, I, yeah, oh, um, well, I, oh, I mean, you could sleep on the producer's couch. And I thought, I could do that. I could do that. That'd be a bit weird. I probably wouldn't sleep very well because I don't know the producer very well. But And then I thought, what about the next woman coming along? And I said, uh, no, I, that's not okay either. And they said, well, I guess we could get you a hotel room, but that'll eat into our profits. And I said, okay. But there's so much of me. Like, that sounds like not a big deal. But there was so much of me that was like, oh, don't be a fuss. Don't cause trouble. Oh, they'll never book you again. Oh, you're being a diva. Oh, you're making, you're making trouble. You need to be as, as nice as possible and as easy as possible and don't get a reputation for being difficult. And then the only way that I fought that was by thinking of the next woman who might not be able to stand up for herself, who right. might not have, you know, I, for all of, you know, I've never asked for money from my parents, but I've always known I can go back to their house and stay. You know, that's a great privilege that not everyone has. So I get to say no to gigs that make me feel uncomfortable, which I think gives me a responsible, responsibility to stand up for the next woman. And to answer your question in this very, very long-winded way, now the next woman is sitting on my hip. You know, I, ha- I feel obliged to say no to shitty gigs and to not I can't take that gig that means I have to sleep in the train station because we need a place to stay for the night because I need to be able to put her down to bed somewhere safe you know with a family member and 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 then be back to feed her within three and a half hours so that changes the way that I approach the gigs I say yes to it has to be worth it well thank you for saying yes to this gig Oh, it's my absolute really pleasure. Thank you for it. coming. And I look forward to uh, asking Laser in 20 years <laughs> <laughs> about all the doors you've opened for her. Ah, oh, yes, nepotism. <laughs> this episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.